Good morning. Wonderful songs. If you, uh, if you can't relate to what those songs are saying, but you heard the words and you want to, then pay attention to the Word of God this morning. Things can change for you. We're going to be in John chapter 3 today, if you have a Bible and you want to go there now. There are few more joyful things in the world than the birth of a child, wouldn't you agree? People are always thrilled, good to see new life. Conversely, there are a few things as sad as the death of a loved one, wouldn't you say? And it's interesting that for centuries man has tried, has tied religion to these two events, probably more than anything else in life. And it's commonly thought that religious people are most likely to go to heaven. Probably a lot of your friends and neighbors think you are because you're here today, right? But people like ministers and priests, they must be going since they're so dedicated to the church, right? <clears throat> Most people have no doubt that all the popes go to heaven too. And people like Mother Teresa must also be going because of such devotion. The Jews have been called God's chosen people. Many people might think that they're not going to have a problem getting into heaven either. So it stands to reason that a religious leader of the Jews should be highest on the list of those God would accept. One of the types of the religious leaders that was in Israel the day of Jesus was the Pharisee. The Pharisee was a person who would, uh, he would live for keeping the laws of God. In fact, he would even make more to keep. You could see him on the street praying, and his devotion to God was pretty evident. He would have massive sections of the Old Testament memorized. A Jew back then would have nothing to do with non-Jews. And a Pharisee would have little to do with his fellow Jew who wasn't as devoted as he was to God. <clears throat> he was the super spiritual, you might call. If anyone thought they were right with God, it was the Pharisee. And today we'll read about a Pharisee whose beliefs get turned upside down by Jesus. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had seen the miracles, he'd heard the teaching. A pretty strong conclusion to make and write. You're teaching us about God and what you say must be true because the miracles prove that your word is true. But why, why did he say this to Jesus? Why did he come to Jesus in the first place? If he's a Pharisee, why does he bother with Jesus? Because most of his fellow Pharisees don't want anything to do with Jesus. In fact, they hate him. 
Nicodemus is at the pinnacle of his religion. He's done all he can and more to serve God. If he's come to Jesus, maybe he should be saying to him, Jesus, keep it up. Get those nominal believers to be as devoted as I am. So something else must be going on for Nicodemus to make a statement like this. So in verse 3 it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I always, I always like to, to see the things in Scripture that kind of get biased and, and ask why they're there. Do you notice it says, Jesus answered him and said? Nicodemus didn't ask a question, did he? Now, if there's something going on here that you and I can't see, but Jesus could, because being God and being omniscient, he knew what was really on Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus was concerned about his relationship with God. And Jesus just cuts to the chase and tells him right up front, he's blunt. How could a religious leader of God's chosen people be worried about heaven? It doesn't seem to make sense. It might surprise you to know, though, that it's not uncommon. In doing research for this message, I came across a book about Mother Teresa. And I'm going to quote parts of, of, of the book, just little pieces of a sentence. She wrote a lot of letters to friends of hers, confidants, when she went to India to serve in probably the worst place in the world for poor people. She writes, Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. Even she knew she was a sinner, huh? And eight years later, she wrote, such deep longing for God, repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. According to the letters compiled by the Vatican, Mother Teresa's doubts continued with her until she died. Why was that the case? Things are not as they seem. We look around the world and we draw a lot of conclusions, make a lot of assumptions, and it's not always right including things like this. We don't like to admit that the pursuit of wealth doesn't make one happy. If everybody wants to be wealthy, nobody wants to believe all the stories that we've read anyways and all the examples of people's lives, that it doesn't do that. If you go to the internet and Google, winners regret winning the lottery, you will be surprised at what it says the number of people who wish they had not won the lottery. Tragic stories. Unbelievable. And it's too bad more people don't know because they, maybe they would stop buying tickets and states would stop sponsoring lotteries that actually ruin people's lives. Well, it's similar in the spiritual world. You think these people whose life appears to be very devoted to God, like Mother Teresa, you think that things would be, you know, 
beyond your understanding and mine, right? That it's not true. Everything is not as it seems. <clears throat> and such is the case with Nicodemus, which is why he came to Jesus. As a Pharisee, he should have no worries, but there he was talking to Jesus, and Jesus turns his words, world upside down in verse 3 by saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Why, why born again? What, why does Jesus use those terms? Think about birth for a second. What did you have to do with your own birth? Did you decide who your parents were going to be? Did you decide which sex you would be? Did you decide what day you would be born? This, this illustration, this analogy with birth shows Nicodemus, there's nothing you can do unless you're born again. And being born again implies you're not part of it. Because when we're born, you know, they cut the cord, they wash us, and they feed us. We start off life making no decisions, <laughs> having no clue, no idea. It's not up to us. It's up to those around us. So, whatever this term born again means, let us understand that a person has no ability to enter the kingdom of God on their own or by working their way to heaven. And that means, Nicodemus, all that you've been doing is for nothing. Could that really be true? And when we look around and we look at religions in general, we find that they're all of a similar vein as what Nicodemus practiced. There's all this effort and desire to do, to do, to do in order to be right with God. It's interesting, I ran across this article on the uh, Catholic online. I'm not picking on Catholics today, by the way. I was raised a Catholic. It says, the Holy Father is full of surprises, born of true and faithful humility. On Wednesday, he declared that all people, not just Catholics, are redeemed through Jesus, even atheists. That's not quite as bad as you think, but it, it does catch your eye. However, he did emphasize there was a catch. Those people must still do good. In fact, it isn't doing good that they're led to the one who is the source of all that is good. And that part's true. But Jesus is pouring cold water all over that, isn't he? Being born again means that all this do-gooding is actually no good. Right? So we look around Catholics, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans. There are some exceptions in there, I understand. All the Eastern New Age-rooted beliefs like reincarnation, karma, etc., that are all pushing us to do good. But Jesus is telling us that something has to happen that we have no control over, and it flies in the face of all the religions. So Nicodemus is tracking with Jesus, as you may be, and he asks a question that you might be asking. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
He's seeing the impossibility, right? I hope you see that too. But he wants to understand. Notice though, he's still thinking, and maybe we are too, about natural childbirth, right? But he's not thought that through. Even if somehow he could be born again and have a second chance at life, how is that going to change anything? How is he going to keep from being sinful, which he knows he is? If Mother Teresa is admitting that she needs to be forgiven, surely the rest of us need it, huh? So you have to understand that Jesus is not talking about anything physical, which is something very difficult for us to understand because that's where our focus is. When we talk about the things of God, it's the spiritual that's the most important. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 5. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus is trying to correct his thinking here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So natural childbirth, that's one flesh giving birth to another flesh, right? But he's saying that which is born of the Spirit, and if you look in your Bible, it's capitalized. It's talking about a person. That which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So the Spirit of God is involved somehow of this different kind of birth that Jesus is talking about, being born again. And by the way, again comes from a Greek word that also means above. So you have to be born from above, emphasizing the fact that God has something to do with this, not us. Why is that the case? Why is it God has to do something here? Why can't we do something? Well, we have to go back to the beginning. And I mean way back to the beginning. When God created Adam and Eve, they lived and they walked with God. And I don't mean that in, in, a, in a figurative sense. They literally did that. If you go back and study Genesis, which I, we could, I wish we could, but we can't. They had a relationship. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a phrase that I love. God was coming to see Adam and Eve, and it says he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And I love that because it shows he was there in person, so to speak. They could see him. They could be with him like I could be with you or you with me. They had a real relationship with him. We don't have that with God, do we? He's not walking around the world anymore, is he? We don't see him. And because of that, some of us have even decided that he doesn't exist. But you know, that's not how it all started. And it was not God's plan that it should be this way. His plan was perfect existence forever. But the fall ruined it. Let's have a look at Genesis chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 15 through 17. 
It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And listen to the phrase, For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So it was very simple, actually, if you think about it, especially if you compare it to all the complicated religions we have in the world. Adam and Eve had it all, and that's putting it mildly, a perfect existence with God. They had it all, except one tree. The rules were simple. There was only one. Don't eat, and you don't die. Eat, and you will surely die. Like the law that says, use a gun, go to jail. Simple as that. This is not the three strikes law, though. It's the one strike law. And some people might think that is too harsh, but I have to ask you, how many times do you need to touch a hot stove before you get burned? Yes, once. Laws are not harsh. The consequences of laws are, are relative to the nature of what they're trying to deal with, or they should be. So then, as we consider this beginning and what happened there we need to conclude that since death is involved that what we're talking about here in Genesis is very serious and not just some religious story as many people think death is involved and notice the specific wording in the of a phrase in verse 17 and you've got to remember, God wrote this book, and he doesn't mince words. He doesn't mess around. He says exactly what he means. There's nothing extra, and there's nothing missing. So when he writes, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, that's exactly what it means. The day they ate, they would die. But we know from the next chapter that God pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve, and they continue living. So what is this death that God is talking about in verse 17? Well, there's lots of places we can look, but Isaiah gives us a clue in chapter 59 in verse 2. It says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. There is a separation between us and God. Why? Our sins, our iniquities. We don't like that. It strikes at our pride. We don't think we're that bad. We disagree that we should go to hell for our sins. And if, but if you analyze this from God's perspective, which we rarely do, what it shows us is how far and how different we are, how far we are from God and how different we are from Him. Not us for us to sit here and criticize, well, he can't do that, he shouldn't be like that, or he doesn't exist because he acts like that. <clears throat> Just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's not true or not right. So what Jesus just told this very religious person is that unless he was born again, he's not going to heaven, should be a wake-up call. You know how many centuries people have been reading this book and they, they've missed that? And they should have seen it. This should be a wake-up call. 
I should be asking myself the question, what if I'm wrong in about my thoughts about God? What if I'm wrong about my opinion of the Bible? What if I'm wrong in my observations of religion? What if things are not as I think? That had to be exactly where Nicodemus was at this point, right? What do you mean I have to be born again? I don't understand. <clears throat> but we tend to look at things in the wrong way, but the principles are not foreign to us. If you break the law and you have to go to jail, you're being separated from society, aren't you? I cannot rejoin society until my debt is paid, right? I'm disconnected in jail. I'm basically dead to my former life, so to speak. I have no part of it anymore. I'm locked up. And <clears throat> Separation is a good definition for death. And the Bible talks about three types of death, and we're going to look at a couple of them. <clears throat> Everyone is familiar with physical death, right? What is it exactly? Have you thought about it? When you view a dead body, what do you see? Let's say we had a coffin up here. We had a funeral going, and there's a dead body in it. <clears throat> you can go up to that body and say things to it that it used to make it smile, and it won't smile. You can go up and say things to that body that used to make it really angry, and it will absolutely have no response. Why? What happened? What's not there? We're all familiar with the fact that people have a spirit, soul, and body, right? We've just been talking about the body. What's missing? It's the soul and the spirit. That part of, the, of a person that makes that person, isn't it? It isn't the physical body that makes the person. That's just the shell that you and I live in. <clears throat> Think about it. A body doesn't have a personality or a will, does it? It doesn't have a mind and emotions, does it? It used to express those things, but now it doesn't. When the soul and the spirit are separated from the body, all that's left is the physical body. But the person is gone, separated. That's why separation is a good, a good definition of the word death. You don't think about it at a funeral, but that's what you're feeling, right? You're separated from this person you loved. They're gone. They're not there anymore. Where did they go? The personality is gone. Death, then, is the separation of the unseen from the seen, isn't it? And in looking at that, you should see, ah, the unseen, the spiritual, that's more important than the physical, isn't it? Not what we emphasize, though. So when someone dies, you are left with the body. They're gone, separated from you and me. You cannot see the spirit and soul, but we sure know when they're missing, aren't we? don't we? Tend a funeral. We see that. So death is more serious than we take it to be. We get caught up in our grief, and we fail to realize what's really happening here. So what kind of death then did Adam and Eve die because God said they would the day they ate the tree? It's clear they physically were going to die, and they did. But what happened that day? The death they experienced was a spiritual death. 
Don't you see? Death of their spirit. It's not something you can see. Not something we emphasize. We walk around on this world and everybody looks alive to us, right? But spiritually, we're all dead and we don't see that part. And it's evidenced by the fact that since the beginning of time, whether you're a primitive man or a civilized man, there's been this drive to sin, huh? And it's interesting, there's also been this drive to pursue God. Just go out in the middle of an island someplace and you've got people setting up idols. Why? Well, if we had a relationship with God, there'd be no need for us to look for Him. <clears throat> it's one of the reasons why there are so many religions. So what's our problem? The Spirit, that part of us that's enabled by God for us to know Him, that's dead in us. The Spirit connects us with God. In John 4.24 it says, God is Spirit. That's what He is like. And that's what He made man like. Sadly, man chose to sin and died spiritually. So these two words, uh, soul and spirit, they're often used interchangeably. The primary distinction between the soul and the spirit of man is that the soul is that animate part of life. It's the seed of the will, the senses, the desires, the affections. That consciousness that you have. The spirit is that part of God that connects us with him. Or refuses to connect because it can't. Which is how we all start off. You see then the spiritual part of life is far more important than the physical. Because God does not have flesh and bones like us. He's a spirit. The angels are spirit. Our problem is, as we see now, we are spiritually dead because of sin. We're separated. We're disconnected. In the same way, the dead body of your friend or relative can no longer have a relationship with you, we can't have a relationship with God. <coughs> so think about it. Does it make sense to you now why Jesus says you must be born again? You've got to be born again spiritually, huh? And that's not something that we know anything about unless God helps us. It makes it very serious, doesn't it? Because we are talking about death. And think about how significant this is, too, in the world. Can you imagine sitting down with all the leaders of the major religions of the world and you discuss what Jesus said to them <clears throat> and you explain being born again and they get it? They understand exactly what you're saying. They, the, the light bulb comes on. And now all these leaders of these religions, they've got to go back to the millions of people who believe something different and say, you know what? We're wrong. Jesus is right. He is the only way. That would be pretty significant. Could that many people be that wrong for this long? It means for thousands of years that people believe exactly the opposite of what Bible, the Bible is teaching. Yes, they can. Some of you may struggle with this idea of why is Jesus the only way? We've not really got to that part yet. It's a good question. So we need to remember the problem, spiritually dead. We need to be made alive again somehow. And our death is a result of our sin, and we can't, we can't have anything to do with God because we've chosen to sin. 
the sin is the problem, we need to get rid of it. It should be clear. Some people don't agree that they're sinful. And I have to say one thing is, well, most people hold Mother Teresa in high regard, and if she asks for forgiveness, maybe there's something you don't see. Are there not things in this world, in your life, that make you angry? Do you not see the problems in this world? And if you look closer, you will also see that you get angry about, for, uh, to, about people who do some of the things that you yourself have done. This brings up another problem, doesn't it? But you have to understand that God has never done anything wrong at all, ever. <clears throat> and he can't. So when he gets angry about sin, he has every right. Our justice systems are not perfectly just. But his justice is. He should, by all means, do something about any crimes committed in his universe, don't you think? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to rid the world of all the bad if you could? What if God did that without hesitation? Because he could. He doesn't have to save anybody. Fortunately, it's also true that God is merciful. He hates what we do, but he loves us. The problem is, is what to do about our sin. Since he's a just judge, well, there's, there's no bribing him. And in this case, you don't even want the idea of getting a reduced sentence. What you want is complete forgiveness. <clears throat> How can that happen? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The just or the unjust? The just is him, the unjust is us. Many people in a lot of the religions know that Jesus died for sins. They really don't know what that means. They know it to be a, a fact. They know somehow, yeah, he loved us, so he died for us. And if you were to ask them, well, what does that mean? They would be hard-pressed to give an answer. They would say something like, well, he loved us so much he died for us. But how does that help? They see crosses with him hanging on it. And they think about this physical death that he died. And he did do that. But that's not all he did. There was another death involved. A different kind of death. Think about this. If I'm going to hell to pay the penalty for my sins, it means I'm dying for my sins, right? Jesus even told the Pharisees, the ones who hate him, that if they didn't believe who he was, they would die in their sins. Okay? So now make the connection then. The Bible says Jesus died for my sins. What is it saying? 
It's the most profound truth of all time in all the universe. If dying for my sins means I'm going to hell to suffer my sins, that, mean, that means he did it for me. He died, he died in my place. He suffered for me. And that should stop you dead in your tracks. He loved me so much that he suffered in my place. Try to measure that love. We could sit here for hours. and do We did that this morning, didn't we? Okay, so the struggle that some of people have about Jesus being the only way, this is the answer. He is unique because he is the only one who could take away sin by paying the price for us. Without that penalty paid, I no longer face hell. Okay then, what about being born again then? If I don't face hell anymore, how does that work? Turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. What does the Bible tell us? He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And if you've never read that before, or you've not read the Bible before, that sounds like, oh my, that's a lot of religious stuff I don't understand. We don't have time to go through the whole verse, but let me just point out a few things to you that you can get. Look at the first three words. It says, He did what? He saved us. We needed that, huh? How did he do it? According to his mercy, because he's merciful. He doesn't have to be, but he is. And then, here's kind of the tricky part. How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Well, what in the world does that mean? What is regeneration? Well, regeneration, there's a Greek word for regeneration that I'm probably going to say terribly wrong, but you'll get my point. The word is Palingenesia, or Genesis. Palingenesis, let me just say that. There's two words in there. The word palin means again, and genesis means birth or beginning. Oh, does that sound familiar? Born again. The regeneration comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. He raises us to life. In a very real sense, He raises us from the dead. And that's exactly what we needed. We can't get a dead body to rise again. Thank God He can get the spirit of each person alive again. Because that's the only way you're going to know Him. If your spirit is dead, you have no hope. But God was not willing that you should have no hope, nor me. How do we become born again? Well, Adam and Eve, they believed in God, didn't they? They saw Him, but they didn't believe Him, and they sinned and died. What about you? Do you believe in God? Here's the hard part. Do you believe what He says? Do you believe what He says about your condition, about your sin? Do you believe you deserve to go to hell for it? He says it's true. And he can't lie. <laughs> I can't contradict him because I've lied. Do you believe you have offended him and deserve hell? And do you want to continue living in your, really, dead condition? Or do you want to be made alive and live for him? This means you put your trust in him for everything he did for you because he paid the price. 
There ain't no religion out there that's going to help you. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And for those who've rarely read the Bible, here's what he's saying. If you put your trust in him, three things are true. You have eternal life. You will not go into judgment. You have passed out of death into life. You've been born again. And if you are born again today, it won't be long until you sense the very real presence of the one who died to save you. God is offering the ultimate in second chances here. It's the one chance you don't want to pass up. It simply does not get any better than this. Except when we get to see Him. So close your Bibles for a second. Let me close my notes. I just want to, I just want to say something here because there are people listening to me that doubt this. And maybe you didn't get it, and I just want to make a couple of things really clear. Some of you doubt, and you do this in a mocking type of, in a mocking sense. You know, that Bible can't be true, written by men, bunch, bunch of rules, do's and don'ts. It's not for me. And there are others of you who are doubting in the academic sense. You're not necessarily upset about this, but you're like, really, that old book? Could it be true? And I would, I would challenge you to think about this. If you get all the religions of the world today and tell them to write a Bible, do you know what it's going to say? It's not hard to figure out. It's going to be a book of do's and don'ts and rules, isn't it? That's how man would write a Bible. Now listen to what we just read in the real Bible. The Son of God himself said, all this stuff that you believe is wrong. It's totally the opposite. Because of your sins, you'll go to hell. Does that sound like something man would write? I could stand up here for an hour probably or more and talk about the hard evidence and why the Bible is true. But to me, what's written in there is so profound. And I look at that and I say, you know what? A man didn't write that. He wouldn't come up with that idea. And what's more, he wouldn't come up with the idea that God himself would come to the world and suffer all of hell for all of mankind to save him. That's not a man's idea. That could only come from God. And so if you're doubting today, I challenge you even in an academic sense, think about those things. Because this book is true. Jesus did really come. He really does care about you. He really did die for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how I thank you this morning. I can still remember 28 years ago when you opened my eyes. I had no idea, no clue who you were. I had my assumptions, my presumptions, uh, my mockings, my own conclusions about what I thought about you, what I thought about heaven and hell, and I couldn't have been more wrong. And I'm so glad today that you opened my eyes, Lord, that I might know you. And I really pray this morning that as we have looked through this, that those who have not seen finally will see this morning and come to know 
just how much you love them. We pray in your name. Amen.